two types of messages, a message from God and a message from the world. And today we're going to be kind of talking about that as we continue the series, Faith That Works. Now in the passage, James, this morning in the passage we're looking at is going to raise the question, where does your wisdom come from? Now, I don't know about you, but it, it seems that every time we talk about wisdom, it seems we're always talking about a godly kind of wisdom. It, it's almost like, uh, okay, we're uh, praying for wisdom. We never really talk about the different types of wisdom there are out there. The world has a wisdom. Uh, the Bible's clear on that. And also, is there not only, there's not only a worldly wisdom, there is a godly wisdom. So look at the introduction. In his letter, James is demonstrating that one's works, words, and now today wisdom, reveal what a person believes. In this passage, he is revealing the difference between two kinds of wisdom, one that is divine in origin and a second that is a, a distorted origin. Now, before we go any further, I feel like we need to look at some definitions. So what is the definition of divine wisdom? Now, what I did is I went and I basically did a little research on what goes into what we can find in Scripture that goes into the makeup of what divine wisdom is all about. And here's what I found. It is the ability to think and act utilizing knowledge. Starts with knowledge. Now, of course, uh, we're in church. Uh, we're people of the Word. Uh, so we know that knowledge comes from God's Word. It comes from his truth. So if you were to say, okay, where does wisdom begin? It begins with the foundation of truth. It begins with the foundation of God's truth. And then it moves to experience. It's not only a knowledge that we hold. It's not only a belief that we hold. We are experiencing life as it pertains to what the Bible calls God's truth. So it's basically in the context of his truth are our experiences, and we begin to see it that way. But then from there, we go to understanding. We have the knowledge. Now we have the experience. We've, we've lived our lives in the context of Scripture. Now we have an understanding because we see it. We get the point of why and how. And then it moves to discernment, the whole idea of discernment. By the, point, by the time we get to that point, we can distinguish between what is true and what is not true or what is true God's way and what's true God, the world's way. But then it takes on its own meaning when it becomes insightful or insight. That's when we begin to see things clearly. It's where we are ready for what comes because we can see it laying out there because we have this wisdom, that we have insight into what's going on. And then we have spiritual illumination. And to me, that is the finished product. It's the idea that we know that we've received a word from God about something specific in our life because it moved from knowledge to our experience in the context of his truth to understanding to the discernment and then we gain the insight. And from that, we have what I believe is the final piece of the equation. We have spiritual illumination. Now, I want you to think in your own life. Have you seen that process play out? I hope you have, because those, this is what I've found from Scripture to be the equation for divine wisdom. Now, James immediately begins basically with a question. How does one recognize divine wisdom? Look at verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? 
let him show by good contact, by good conduct, that his words are done in the meekness of wisdom. Now, what is he saying? He's saying that divine wisdom will be demonstrated in humility, and from that will come good conduct, good works, good fruit that will come of our lives. Now, we see that he's beginning with this idea of what is this in your life? He's basically asking, is this in your life, divine wisdom? Is that what goes into to you when it comes to you living your life in the context of God's word? But then he's getting ready to change the conversation to show the contrast into this idea of a distorted wisdom. Now, this distorted wisdom had its origin or its beginnings in the Garden of Eden. And we know the story, don't we? How, how does the distorted wisdom come about? Well, the enemy, if you look back in the account in Genesis chapter 3, you're going to see that the enemy distorted the words of God, right? He's there with Eve. He's having a conversation with Eve. And we have this picture of how wisdom has now become distorted. And where did the enemy start? He started attacking the word of God. He distorted the word of God. Then the enemy created doubt in the mind of Eve about God's word. First, he brought a distortion of God's word. Then he created or began to work on the doubt that he wanted Eve to have in that word. Then from there, she desired something that was not of God's truth or his wisdom, which we know how it ended up. It led into a form of ruin and destruction. And we see that. So wisdom, there's a secondary form of wisdom that now is in the world, and it is what we would call a distorted wisdom. Before, we just had divine wisdom. Now we have the capability of having a distorted wisdom. So look on your outline. Wisdom from a distorted origin, first of all, its motives are all wrong. Look at verse 14. It says, but if you have bitter envy... And self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. He's, he's describing a distorted wisdom. So the motives of our heart determine the things that we do and say. And the Bible says it this way. As a man or as a person thinks in their heart, so are they. As you think in your heart, as you begin. And, and, and so if I put divine wisdom in there, my identity will be in that. I will operate through that lens. But here, what James is saying, he's saying, be careful because we can also identify with a distorted wisdom, a distorted wisdom. So he says it begins on the inside. The phrase bitter envy in verse 14 could translate raging jealousy. It literally means displeasure, really, in the good fortune of others. There may be good things happening in a person's life. And as a result, instead of you speaking and stirring and firing that person about what good could be coming to their life, there's something that enters into the equation where there's a bitter envy uh, that runs up against that. But then he says this idea of self-seeking in verse 14, which literally means selfish ambition. It's the idea that those things shouldn't be happening to you I'm the center of my world. It should be happening to me, okay? Now, someone has said this. Jealousy's desire is to demote others 
while self-seeking's desire is to promote oneself. You put both together and it means to drag someone down while you're trying to lift yourself up. And that's really why he's describing here in verse 14. The motive only leads to destruction. It is self-centered instead of God-centered. Therefore, the heart of this wisdom is distorted from the beginning. Now go back to the story of Eve. What was the attempt there? The attempt there was to squelch the word of God, God's wisdom, and to raise herself up. If you read the account, you'll see it in there. To, to play down God's wisdom and to play up what she desired. And that's really, if you think about it, at the heart of a lot of sin. So wisdom from a distorted origin next, we see its mannerisms are wrong. Look at verse 15. He says, this wisdom, this distorted wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, and demonic. He's basically saying, let me show you. It originated in the garden, and since then, it's taken on all kinds of characteristics. It's, it's these three things. It's, it's earthly, it's sensual, and it's demonic. So James is pointing this out about these, from where this whole idea of distorted wisdom comes from. And he basically says, first of all, it's earthly in nature. It's of the world. It speaks of a system of thought or a way of doing things. This person bases his or her decisions on earthly or worldly considerations, basically following the counsel of men or the counsel of others. I mean, you think about it. What does the world, how does the world look at wisdom that is earthly? Well, first of all, it could be that which has selfish ambition, where it only results in helping you and maybe not others, where, where you're self-absorbed. And he's basically saying, you've got a whole world out there saying, yes, yes, this is good. This, and the world will affirm that. Now, a true follower of Jesus is to look at his or her situation from a heavenly perspective, not an earthly perspective. How do we know this? Colossians 3, 2 says this. Set your mind, your affections on things above and not on the things of the earth. That would include where your wisdom comes from. Your wisdom should not come from the earth, from these things that surround us, but from above. So in verse 15, James uses the term earthly, whereas John in 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John uses the term world or worldly in his letters. But they mean the same thing. So what do we read? Well, in 1st John chapter 2, here's what John's take on this is. He says, do not love the world or the things in the world. So basically, it's not talking about people here necessarily. He's saying, don't let your motivations come from the world system. Don't gain your wisdom from the distorted wisdom of this world. It's systems, the way it plays itself out. Nor of the things of the world. Don't, 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 don't have this sensual reach towards the things of the world. He says this, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now, now again, what is he talking about? He's not talking about the people of the world. We're called to love all people. He's talking about its systems. And what he's saying there is this. When there becomes the world and it begins to compete with your affections for God and what he's done and what he desires to do for you, if you cave to the competition of the distorted wisdom or living in that way, you're, you're headed for ruin. 
And here's why. Look at verse 16. For all that is in the world, he's basically saying in these next statements, all sin can be summed up in the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. He's saying this is not of the Father, but it's of the world. If you want to be able to recognize the true roots of a distorted wisdom, it comes through these three measures. And then he says in verse 17, the world, you need to remember, he's basically saying, you need to remember this, the world is passing away. It's going away. It's temporary. But he who does the will of God abides forever. And again, you could include divine wisdom in this conversation. So verse 17, the world is temporary, also meaning the wisdom of the world is going away. This alone tells us that the wisdom from the world is not godly wisdom, it's divine wisdom is what, this, what he's trying to get us to seek. Now, second of all, what does he point out here in verse 15? He says the mannerisms of a distorted origin are not only earthly in nature, but look at verse 15, it's sensual in nature. It speaks of the flesh. Now, hold your place here. Turn to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Paul has something to say about this. Now, as you turn, listen to this. Sensual wisdom comes from within. It must be fought against. Okay? It must be. You say, how, how, how would you know that? Well, again, I have the privilege of being a pastor for several decades now. And, and I have found where people get in the most trouble is when their inner desires begin to take over the desires that God has for them. That's where marriage failure happens. That's where infidelity is born. That's when you become so self-absorbed that nothing matters but what you want. And that's what he's describing here. And so he's talking about it must be fought against. So what's another way to describe sensual in nature, when it comes to wisdom, it's really the wisdom of if it feels good, basically, it's a, if it feels good, it's a do it wisdom, is basically what this, the, the thing is. So, so look at Romans chapter 8, verse 5. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. The person who's basically saying, I'm going to operate my life on my inner desires and what I want and what's all about me. And, you know, you only live once. Uh, it, life's short. It's, it's too short to not be happy. Just go out there and do whatever. He's basically calling us on that. He's saying the flesh, they set their minds on the things of the flesh. Their wisdom comes from the world to put it on the flesh. It comes from within them. But those who live according to the spirit, the things of the spirit, that's where divine wisdom comes from. For to be carnally minded or fleshly minded is death. He says it's going to just lead to ruin and destruction. It may be the end of a relationship. It may be the end of a family or a marriage. It may lead to all kinds of ruin. But it's definitely in play when the sensual desires are where we're gaining our wisdom. He goes on, for to, to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded, to have divine wisdom is life. And this is an interesting thing. And peace. And peace. You know, it's amazing. If you... If you talk to most people and you help them uh, to understand and, and they, they sit there and if they have time to really think about the question, what do you want most in life? You know what many people will describe to you in so many ways and so many words? 
I just want peace. I want peace. That's really at the heart of the heart of most people. I just want peace. But isn't it amazing that we can be our own worst enemy when it comes to peace? We can set things in motion. We can begin to buy into the distorted wisdom of this world and of our inner desires. And we become our own worst enemy because we're the ones creating the parts that are at peace. We find ourselves there many times. He goes on, he says, because the carnal mind is enmity against God. It's warring against God. For it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. Now, when you read the law of God, most people say, oh, the law of God is, oh, it's so restricting. It's so this. No, the law of God, I've told you a million times, is there to provide for you and to protect you. That's what it's there for. When he says, thou shalt not do this, it's there to protect you and to provide for you. The better way. It's literally divine wisdom. Then he says this. So then, those who are in the flesh... You're not capable of pleasing God. And listen, if you are not pleasing God, you're not at peace. The Bible says that peace comes from the heart of God when we're following the heart of God. So when we set our minds on the things of the flesh, on the wisdom of the flesh, it always leads us away from God and his desires for us. So based on these verses, we will never find peace, we'll never please God following the wisdom of the flesh, of the sensual in nature, because it only leads to ruin and destruction. You say, you seem to be so confident of that. I, I could literally, over the last 20 years of counseling, line up people in which they could give testimony of that. It's everywhere. Next. Wisdom from a distorted origin and its mannerisms are wrong. It has, it's earthly in nature. It's sensual in nature. And then he, boy, he really pulls out the big card here now. It's demonic in nature. And he's talking about the enemy. Look at verse 15 again in James chapter 3. He says, this wisdom, this distorted wisdom does not descend from above. It's earthly. It's sensual. It's even demonic. Now, hold your place here in James and turn to Ephesians chapter 6. It's important that we understand what's happening here. Now, when studying and dealing with the enemy and his forces, most of the time we go to dangerous extremes. Let me tell you what I mean by that. We either underemphasize the enemy, it's literally, and when that happens, we become open prey. Uh, Adam and Eve, they underestimated the enemy. Jesus did not underestimate the enemy. If you go study Matthew chapter 4 on the Mount of Temptations and he's there, he, he doesn't try to fight the enemy in his own logic. Everything he pulls out is of the word of God. The divine wisdom is what he, he uses to encounter, to, to overcome the temptations of the enemy. He doesn't fall back on the distorted wisdom of this world. So either when it comes to the enemy, we either underemphasize the enemy or we overemphasize the enemy. We make too much of him where we blame everything on him. Listen, we should never have a fixation on the enemy. We're called to follow the heart of God called to follow the heart of God. And so many times we start to blame and we start to think he has all this power that he can orchestrate all these things. Now listen, he is powerful. 
You don't need to underestimate him, but you don't need to overestimate him either. Isaiah 26, 3 reads this way. God will keep you in perfect peace if your mind is stayed on him. Stayed on him. We need to look to him. Think about it. When it comes to the enemy, we need to know what we're up against. We also need to know how to stand against him. So look at Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. Paul says, finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Look to him. Look to him. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. The strategies of the enemy. The, the, the ways that he will come at you. The temptations. Uh, the, the times that calamity will come into your life and you begin to blame God and cry out to God and say, why? It, these are all strategies of the enemy. And, and the word wiles there literally translate the craft of deceit, the art of deceit, the systematic procedure of deceit. That's what he's trying to create. The enemy through a systematic procedure desires to deceive you into thinking that the ways of God are not profitable or the best way for your life. Think about it. That's how he pitched the temptation to Eve. You're missing out on something. God's holding back. Go for it. God wants you to trust. I mean, the enemy wants you to trust your own wisdom which is born out of your desires, the world's wisdom, his wisdom. He doesn't care which wisdom you use as long as it doesn't have divine, as long as it's not divine wisdom. So look at Ephesians 6, 12. Here's why we don't need to underestimate him. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. There is a whole systematic approach to bringing deception to the world through the enemy. And he'll use everything in his power to bring it out. He's there. He desires to bring that out. Now, therefore, what do we need to do? Well, Paul tells us here in Ephesians 6. He basically says in verse 13, Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. He's basically saying we, there's times where we just, we just need to stand our ground. There's times we don't need to cater to, to the distorted wisdom. We just need to hold tight to the divine wisdom that we know. And how do we do that? How, how does that happen? Stand therefore, verse 14, having girded your waist with what? Truth. It all begins where? With truth, the knowledge of truth. And then having put on the breastplate of what? Righteousness. And that's a big deal. That righteousness is the wisdom of God. It is the pursuit that we should have. And then having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, it will be peace. Listen, for me in my life, peace has been the thing that has guided me the most when it comes to knowing that I have partaken of divine wisdom because there's a peace that comes with doing that. And then he goes on, he says, and above all, this is something you can't leave out, taking the shield of faith, shield of faith. How many of you, your faith gets stretched at times? How many of you begin to doubt faith at times? 
that's the enemy's ploy. That's, that's him trying to put that there. He, he desires to get you to doubt that because when that begins to crumble, everything begins to crumble. He's basically saying you need that faith with which you will be able to quench the fiery darts of the wicked one. And take the helmet of salvation. I always wondered, you know, the helmet of salvation, why is that important? Well, I know that when I begin to doubt my faith, doubt salvation, there's a lot of things that begin to crumble around me. You know, when I, you know, when I finally got to the point where I felt like my faith was its strongest, and, and by the way, how many of you noticed your faith is tested through varying degrees? But I knew when, when I got past the point where I didn't doubt salvation anymore, when I, when I knew that I could trust God's word, there's always going to produce what he desires for me and what I really want for myself. When I began to just settle in on that, boy, things really got a lot easier. When I just said, no, this is the way. I have found through my experience with divine wisdom, this is the way. And that's the reason I think the helmet of salvation, because guess what? The, guess where the battle is fought? for salvation, for what God wants, for what's best for us. We're, whether we're going to choose a distorted wisdom over divine wisdom, it's going to happen right here in our minds. He's saying, you better capture that. He goes on and he says, and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. But you know, it really doesn't end there. It's amazing how often we read this and we say, okay, we got to have the armor. Here it is. But then verse 18 is just as important as any piece of the armor. And it begins praying always with all prayer and supplication. How? In the spirit. In the spirit. The only way you're going to know anything about divine wisdom is through the revelation of what the spirit brings. That revelation can lead you to the word of God and should lead you to the word of God. But the spirit is the one who's guiding and directing you towards divine Wisdom. Turn back to James chapter 3. That's the last place we'll go. Next, with distorted wisdom, its manifestations are wrong. Look at verse 16. For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and everything, and, and excuse me, and every eagle, <laughs> eagle, every evil things are done, are there. It's basically when you say self-seeking, it's the idea of selfish ambition. It's where the only thing that matters is what I want, what I want. And if I want it badly enough, I will manipulate my way to it. I will step all over other people to make sure that it's what I want. I just heard of something very sad this past week. Evidently, there's a, uh, a gentleman who writes a lot of children's Christian books. I don't know if you saw this, but he's just come out as being gay. Uh, being homosexual. And basically, uh, he, he, he sat there, and the way the article reads, I mean, you're talking about the epitome of selfish ambition. It's the way the article reads is he's come to this discovery, and he's walking away from a marriage, I think, of 20 years. He's walking away from parenting three children. He, he's walking away from all that because he... This is his longing. This is his happiness. This is what it would look like for him to be happy. Never mind the fact that three children's lives could reach destruction. I mean, think about that. 
Some of the things that we do, all because we, this distorted wisdom is out there. and We want what we want, and we don't care how it affects anyone else. It's amazing how far it can go. When people are involved only in themselves, self-absorbed, promoting themselves, they are saying they are all that matters. What's the church going to do for me? How, how will this decision affect me? What's in it for me? How can I get what I want? Boy, it's amazing how damaging and destructive that thought process is. Wisdom from a distorted origin. Next, we see wisdom from a divine origin. It's, it's interesting. James goes from explaining what the wisdom that should be something we should look to, the distorted wisdom. He moves from that. Now he's going to tell us what divine wisdom looks like. In, verse, uh, in James chapter 1, verse 5, first of all, is there such thing as divine wisdom? And look at what he says in James 1, 5. If any of you lacks wisdom... Let him ask of God. Now, what does that tell us? That there is a wisdom that originates from God. And then he goes, who gives to all liberally without reproach, and it will be given to him. How many of you have ever had to ask for wisdom? I don't know that there's been any other time since March that, that I've had to ask God for wisdom more than navigating, the, moving the church through this whole COVID thing. And many of you have sent emails of encouragement and just said, listen, I can't imagine what that must be like. And you're right. Every week, it's, you're trying to rely on this information. Then you hear this information. And then this person says this. And you're, you're, you're sitting there and you want the safety for the congregation, but yet you want to you bring people together for worship. That's a conflicting place to be. And you need wisdom. So he's saying, basically... And here, here in this passage, James is going to present the characteristics of divine wisdom in four couplets. Look at what he does. The first one is this. It's clean in its desires. Divine wisdom is clean in its desires. Look at verse 17. It says, but the wisdom that is from above, that divine wisdom, is first pure, then peaceable. Now, when he says first pure, he's basically saying divine wisdom is rooted in a holy life, in a clean life. Okay, the motives are pure. They do what they do out of a love for Jesus Christ. It could be out of a love for the kingdom, out of, out of a, the heart that, that is surrendered to God, not their own desires. And then he says it's peaceable. It's the idea that it gets along with others. It, it gets not only along with others, but they get along with themselves. How many of you have ever had a time in your life where your soul you felt was in turmoil? Have you ever been there? Am I the only one? <laughs> We've all been there, haven't we? Maybe it's something, maybe it was a reaction that we had or a relationship that's breaking our heart and there's no peace there and we're sitting there and it's just sometimes there's shame there, there's guilt there and, and, and the enemy just, pounds on us and, and, and it's just there. He's saying this whole idea of being peaceable is more than us getting along with one another. It's getting along with ourselves. Getting along with ourselves. A life that is unclean is in turmoil. No peace. And how many of you found that many times 
These people are difficult to be around when they have no peace in themselves. He says, pure than peaceable is a characteristic of divine wisdom. Next, wisdom from a divine origin is considered in its disposition. Look at verse 17. But the wisdom that is from above, divine wisdom, is first uh, pure, then peaceable, gentle, and yet willing to yield. Now, the word gentle there means a sweet reasonableness. How many of you um, enjoy people who are gentle? Uh, the people who have really spoken in my life, and, and by the way, how many, of you, how many of you, there's been times where your life just needed a strong rebuke? You ever been there? I've been. And then how many of you, you just, I don't know, you, you find that person that's willing to come, they love you enough to, to rebuke you, but they, they know how to do it. They can, they're gentle. And they come alongside of you. That's what he's talking about. A sweet reasonableness. He's saying this is what should be generated in that person with divine wisdom. But second of all, willing to yield. It's a person who is gentle. Someone who is not just fixed on their own opinion. Not just someone who refuses to budge. They're reasonable. How many of you ever had people in your life you couldn't tell them anything? You cared about them. You knew it needed to be said. And they, they didn't care what you said. They just kind of did their own thing. They weren't reasonable. You couldn't tell them anything. He's talking about the person who's receiving divine wisdom. There's something different about them. A wise person, listen to this, does not think they have all the answers. A wise person is someone you can reason with. They're willing to yield, which means they're approachable and teachable. You can teach them something. They'll, they'll receive from you. It means they are able to look at all views and not just their own. How many of you have ever met people that maybe they show up for a meeting and it's all about their agenda, it's all about what they want to see, and they're not willing to look at any other way other than that right there? Occasionally, my wife has to call me on that. <laughs> She's like, well, you don't want to hear my opinion? Well, no. <laughs> I mean, I might as well say that because I'm communicating that many times. But you know what I've learned over the years? It's better to get other opinions. It's better to hear sometimes from a female point of view. It's better to, and I think that's the reason how God, that's how God puts us together in marriage. How many of you have noticed that many times in marriage, opposites do attract. They do come together. For, some, for, for many times, it's just for a different perspective, something that can balance us out. And he's saying, hey, a person that receives divine wisdom, they're approachable, they're teachable, you, you can share with them, they, they, they attempt to see uh, what they have from all angles. A person with the wisdom of God, a divine wisdom, is willing to look at all sides of the matter and is willing to be flexible in matters that are not principled. They're not principle. You see, we still need to have, we still need to hold the principle. What is the principle? It's the standard of God's truth. We still have to hold to that. But anything beyond that, God can work tremendously. Next, wisdom from a divine origin is compassionate in its dealings. Look at verse 17. He says, it's not only gentle and willing to yield, but it's full of mercy and good fruits. 
How many of you desire that your life have good fruit that comes from it? Don't you love that? I mean, I mean um, it can be generations that come after you, your legacy. You just want good fruit. But where does good fruit come from? Well, Paul tells us in Galatians 5.22, he lists nine good fruit that can come from our lives. You, you know them, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, which is patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Paul's basically saying in that statement, hey, if you really want to understand what can come of divine wisdom, here's a snapshot. This is what can come of it. You know why we know that's true? Because he said, these are the things of the spirit, of the spirit. That's divine wisdom. The per this person sees those who are struggling and they reach out to them. They reach out. They're kind. There's a joy about them. They're, they're, they're pleasant people. And he says this, the person who's receiving divine wisdom, they're full of mercy and good fruits. Next, wisdom from a divine origin is consistent in its dealings with others. Look at what he says in verse 17. He says, but the wisdom that's from above, divine wisdom, is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy, good fruits, without partiality, and without hypocrisy. Now, this person treats everyone the same. This is a person that does not place a value on someone and treats them accordingly. You realize that's at the heart of racism and prejudice? It's literally the idea of placing value on someone and then dealing with them accordingly of the value that you've placed on them. It can be the color of someone's skin. It can be whether they have or don't have. It, it, can be, it can be seen in any kind of way. And he's very clear here. It's the person, they don't, they don't base how they treat someone by their color, by whether they're rich or poor. And then he says the word hypocrisy is used to describe, you know, a Greek actor on the stage. They put on a mask. They play a part. A person that receives divine wisdom is not playing a part. It's become a part of who they are. They're, they're identified with this divine wisdom. A person with the wisdom of God, they're genuine. They're the real deal. How many of you find it refreshing when you find someone who's the real deal? They're genuine. What they say, they'll do. He says, without partiality, without hypocrisy. So I want to close with this application. You've seen me describe and you've seen James describe the, the distorted wisdom and now the divine wisdom. And really the question for us this morning is this. Which source of wisdom directs your life? Have you ever thought about that? What directs your life? Distorted wisdom. It's a wisdom that can be manipulated, that can bring destruction. Divine wisdom, it brings peace, spiritual maturity, reasonableness. And then look at verse 18. Look how he says this. Now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Now you could say, what does that have to do with divine wisdom? 
basically, when you look at the word righteousness, you know, so many times we look at righteousness and it means we're doing things that are righteous. We're doing things that are good. But it carries a broader scope. A person who is righteous, here, here's what it is. It's a person who conforms to everything God desires. That's really what the word really means broad, in a broad sense. Basically, we conform to his will. We conform to his wisdom. That's how it's being used here. But most of all, it leads to spiritual maturity. Spiritual maturity. Now, how do we get there? I want to show you a translation, a translation of Romans 12 too. I think I've told you this many times. Probably the, the verse that I quote the most in the Bible is Romans 12 too. It just fits everything. Look at what it says. Here's a little different translation of that, but I love the way it puts it. Stop imitating the ideals and opinions of the culture around you. Stop that. Don't be conformed to the world. That's what that is. But be inwardly transformed how? By the Holy Spirit. Now, you may look at that and say, well, okay, now this is not language we've been using this morning. It's that whole idea of being transformed by the Holy Spirit. Listen, when the Holy Spirit begins to do a transformative work in your life, it will always lead back to God's truth. It will never contradict divine wisdom. Never. And so he's basically saying, but inwardly be transformed by the Holy Spirit who is leading us to God's truth, who is leading us to divine wisdom, that a total reformation of how you think through a total reformation of how you think. It's like, it's got to change. Listen, if you say you've been saved, the Spirit of God now lives within you, that's what happens when we come to salvation, and your perspective has not changed one iota, you need to question whether you have faith or not. Something's going to change. He's telling us that. He's saying something will be transformed in you. There will be a reformation that takes place in you. This will empower you to discern God's will as you live a beautiful life, satisfying and perfect in his eyes. What's that saying? The only way you're going to have peace, the only way you're going to have a fulfilling life, the only way you're going to have a beautiful life, the only way you'll have a life that pleases the heart of God is when you fall in line with divine wisdom, which will be orchestr an orchestrated work of the Holy Spirit that will be bring transformation and reformation. And, and I'm sorry, reformation. That's the only thing. That's, why, that's how that happens in us. So as we close, let me ask you a question. Which wisdom is leading you the distorted wisdom where you're looking through maybe manipulation to get what you want? That, that the only thing that matters in your life is you, your happiness. You don't care how it affects anyone else or a divine wisdom which brings peace where you're at peace with yourself. You're at peace with God and you're at peace with others. Man, I'm telling you, when you get a hold of divine wisdom and you let that lead you and you have a teachable spirit and you allow God to do something in and through you, you'll be amazed at how life will be. I've lived both lives, both wisdoms, haven't you? Which one pays, pays better? Divine wisdom. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you so much for your love and your goodness. And Lord, I just thank you for these practical words from, the, from James and how it teaches us so practically. 
And Father, I just pray for each one of us in this room, Lord, that we would never be satisfied with the world's wisdom, with, with, with this, this distorted wisdom that began back in the garden. But Father, that we would only settle for that divine wisdom, Lord, that you can live through us in such a way that, that we will be a better person when it comes to just living life out because we're living your truths that as a result, we'll be a better spouse. As a result, we'll be a, a, a better father, whatever it may be, mother, whatever any relationship is, that we would be a better church member, just living out what you desire in and through us. Father, I thank you that when I look through this room, I, I see those models that have been in place for many years now that I can look at these people that are sitting here and I see these are people that are teachable. These are people who hold divine wisdom. Father, I thank you for that. And Lord, we just thank you for what you desire to do in and through us. In Jesus' name, amen. Jonathan? Amen.